because of what it represents, what it symbolizes. The cross of Jesus symbolizes freedom. The cross of Jesus symbolizes forgiveness. The cross of Jesus symbolizes eternal life. Eternal life gained for us when he gave his life on such a cruel instrument of torture. Do you remember how John's gospel focuses on the timing of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection? Remember, John kept saying to us as we read it, his hour had not yet come, or the time was not yet. It wasn't right, so delay. So something else happened. But then in John 12, Jesus says this. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Now he says in John 12, my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And that's where John tells us, as we saw last week, that God did glorify. God even spoke from heaven. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And from that moment, Jesus moves steadily and quickly towards the cross. In that same chapter, John 12, he says, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. When I first read that, I thought, you know, if we lift up Christ, everybody's going to be drawn to Christ. That's not what he's saying only, because John clarifies. He wants to make sure we understand. He says, he said this so that he could show us the kind of death that he was going to have. He wanted to, to let us know that he was going to die by being lifted up onto a cruel cross. Now is the time. Everything that we have learned in this story up to this point is going to culminate and climax in this event the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything points up to this week that happened 2,000 years ago now. We call it Passion Week, the week of Jesus' suffering and death. God's timing was perfect from the creation right on through. He has been preparing for this day, and he knew even at the creation that one day someone would have to pay for the sins of all mankind, and that someone was going to be his son, Jesus. The Bible even says that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth. That is, that God knew from the very beginning that it would cost the life of his only begotten son in order for us to spend eternity with God. So Jesus' passion was no surprise to him. In fact, he says it is the very reason he came. Everything converged into one point in time so that Jesus could accomplish his Father's will to save all of us. Passion Week began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. People were crying out, Hosanna, God save us! But they had in mind a different kind of Messiah than Jesus was. They had in mind a military ruler that would conquer the Romans and drive them out, and Israel would become a power once again. But Jesus had a different idea of salvation. He had a different type of salvation in mind. And so he spent that whole week teaching in the temple courts. And day after day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he's teaching the people the final things that he was able to try and communicate because he knew that Passover was coming. When Passover came, then he was going to give his life on a cross. 
Thursday afternoon, he sent two of his disciples to go prepare a special room where he and his disciples could share in the Passover meal actually one day early. It would be celebrated by everyone else the next evening after they had slaughtered the Passover lambs and poured their blood out on the altar. Then they would take the lambs home and they would roast them and they would have the Passover meal together. But Jesus and disciples are a day early. John 13 describes how they gathered in the upper room to share the meal. And John tells us that Jesus began the evening by washing the dirty feet of his disciples, something that the most lowly slave should have done, but nobody thought to do it. Jesus, the master and teacher, got up and he washed their feet. And then he said, you get the point? Do you get what I'm trying to say here? I'm setting an example for you that you are to serve one another. You are to wash each other's feet. You're to, you're to do whatever you can to serve one another. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Not only something like this, but to give his life as a ransom for many. The story, God's story, was building to a climax. The Passover meal was a beautiful feast, a symbolic meal which recreated the various elements of the Passover story. The story, of course, was about a time when God delivered his people out of Egypt where they'd been slaves for 400 years. And so he sent Moses in. And remember, there were 10 plagues. And then the 10th plague was the worst of them all. It was the death of the firstborn son in every household. And on the night of this Passover meal, the Jews were commanded to kill the Passover lamb, a lamb for each household, and they were to put the blood on the side posts and, and across the top of their door so that as the death angel made his way through Egypt to slay the firstborn of every household, he would pass over their houses and spare their firstborn sons. At Jesus' Passover meal, there was no roasted lamb because the lambs were going to be killed in the temple the very next day. It didn't matter because Jesus was there, and Jesus, as John had told us, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he instead highlighted the unleavened bread and the wine that were at that meal. And he gave them new significance. He gave them new meaning. He said that the bread would forever signify the body that he was going to put on the cross, broken for us that we may have life. And that the wine would forever signify the blood that he would shed, that he would freely give up on that cross so that that blood could cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from all sin. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. At the first Passover, the lambs had to die in order for the firstborn sons to live. And at this Passover, the firstborn son of God had to die so that the rest of us could live. What a twist of the story. Crucifixion was created by the Romans as one of the worst, in fact, probably the worst instrument of execution man has ever devised. It was, it was ghastly. It was, it was difficult to even watch. The person who was executed in this way was uh, uh, put out in, a, in the most embarrassing, shameful way stripped naked, put on the cross, left there to die for however long that took. They would be nailed to the, to the boards through their wrists, through their feet, and they would be left there for as long as they could last. Some guys lasted for a few hours. Some lasted for a day or two. There's a few examples from history where somebody lasted almost a week. 
before they finally expired on that cross. Matthew 26 and 27 give us the details of that gruesome Friday. So I want you to turn with that if you have a Bible, Matthew 26, and let's just read some of these passages together. I'll just kind of skip through here so that you can see what was happening here. First of all, Matthew 26, starting with verse 59. When Jesus is arrested, he's first taken to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, for the first of several very unjust trials. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest then said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the testimony. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? From the Sanhedrin, Jesus is taken to Pilate, Roman governor, because the Jews were not allowed to execute anyone. Pilate quickly figured out that Jesus should not be killed for the charges that they had against him. But he eventually bowed to their very intense political pressure and consented to him being crucified. He sentenced Jesus to death. He handed Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to beat him to within an inch of his life. Chapter 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, and they took the staff, and they struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. But now bruised, beaten nearly to death, Jesus was forced to carry the crossbeam up from Pilate's home to Golgotha, the place of execution. Continuing chapter 27. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they mixed Jesus' wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above him, his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, some people survived a whole day or more on a cross before finally dying because of the great loss that he had already experienced, because I think even more so the weight of the sins of the whole world that were upon him. Jesus died in about six hours. Continuing Matthew 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. When the Son of God died, he cried out in a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. Immediately, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was opened up. Access to God was freely given. The earth itself began to shake. Tombs broke open, and holy people that had died in days or weeks before that came back to life. Everything changed when Jesus died on that cross, creation itself was disturbed. When the Roman centurion witnessed the blackened sky and the earthquake and saw how Jesus had died, this battle-hardened soldier got scared to death. And he said, surely this was the Son of God. This was the greatest hour of darkness the world has ever known. No time has ever been as dark as it was at this moment. Now, the sky was dark because the sun had been blocked and God had caused darkness to fall on the earth from noon to 3 p.m. But now the very Son of God had been put to death. The light of the world had been snuffed out. Never had there been greater darkness than on that day. And in the middle of the day, it seemed like night. Matthew tells us right at the beginning of chapter 26 that the chief priests and the leaders, they were so wicked, so opposed to Jesus, were looking for a sly way, a devious way, a deceptive way that they could somehow kill Jesus. But they had already reasoned in their mind, we can't do it now, the feast is too close, and if all these people are gathered here in Jerusalem, there might be a riot, so we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait a little while. And then Judas showed up. Judas, one of the disciples, came and he said, I'll be willing to betray him. I'll tell you where he is. I'll bring you to him secretly if you pay me some money. And so they agreed. And so the plan went into place more quickly than they had anticipated. These wicked men loved the darkness. They sought out the darkness. They knew that that darkness would cover up their many sins. And that night when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, he said to them, this is your hour. You've come now because this is your hour, the hour of darkness. They had evil things in mind. They wanted the darkness to cover up their tracks. And to some degree, they were successful because most of the people didn't know what was going on. This was kind of private. It was off to the side. And even the next day, as Passover was beginning, as the lambs were being slain in the temple courts that afternoon, Jesus was outside dying on a cross. Most of the people didn't know it. Most of the people were gathered in the city, busy getting their lambs sacrificed and getting preparations made at their homes or their, their uh, friends' homes, so that they could celebrate Passover together. And 
quietly out on the side, these evil men were killing the Son of God. The leaders conspired together to execute Jesus because their hearts were full of darkness. Even as Jesus appeared before Pilate, Pilate was more righteous than they. Pilate was more a man of fairness and justice than they were. He kept trying to release Jesus. He tried to substitute Barabbas, notorious murderer, and say, let's release him. Let's, let's have him be the one that's executed and Jesus can go free. But this bloodthirsty mob was intent on getting Jesus out of the way. And the wicked leaders turned that mob against Jesus. In this hour of darkness, evil men thought that they had triumphed. I imagine that Satan himself thought that he had won. I've just killed the Son of God. That's the end of the story. But little did Jesus' enemies know that they had actually played into God's hand. Their evil schemes had accomplished exactly what God had ordained would happen to his Son. And for all their evil intent, everything went exactly as it was supposed to in order to accomplish God's purpose. In this hour of darkness, Jesus' disciples abandoned him. Yes, I know Peter tried to defend him momentarily, but as soon as Jesus told him to put away his sword, then he ran away along with all the other disciples. We shouldn't be too hard on them. I think many of us would have done the same. In that moment of truth, that moment when we are to stand up for God, how many of us have also run away? How many of us also have denied Jesus at that moment when we could have spoken most simply, most eloquently on his behalf or defended him? Thankfully, their lives were spared. And in a few weeks, these same disciples would show courage enough once the Holy Spirit was inside them. This was the greatest hour of darkness that the world had ever known. But in this hour of darkness, there is good news. Good news because Jesus is giving his life for all the rest of us. It is gruesome. It is grotesque. It is the worst thing imaginable to look at. But this is the greatest moment in history because God is substituting the perfect sacrifice for us so that we can go free, so that we can be saved. To borrow a line from Charles Dickens, it is the worst of times. It is the best of times. And as Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth, the best that God had to offer endured the worst that man could dish out. And Jesus standing in for us took upon himself the punishment that was ours. Isaiah said it this way, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Thank God that Jesus was willing. Jesus was willing to give his life in our place. On October 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 took off from Detroit, Michigan's airport. Immediately, there was problems. Immediately, the plane, just getting up in the air, plummeted, and 155 people were killed. The only person that survived that crash was a four-year-old girl named Cecilia. Cecilia was found as they drove up to the wreckage, as the emergency vehicles were coming up. Here's this little four-year-old girl wandering around the wreckage, dazed, 
but unhurt. They didn't know what had happened. How could this one little girl survive when everyone else in that plane was killed until finally they reasoned what had happened was that her mother, in those seconds as the plane was plummeting to earth, her mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seat belt and she went around and she knelt in front of her little girl and she wrapped her arms around her and she protected her as much as she could as that plane crashed into the earth. The mother took all of the pain, all of the destruction of that plane crash so that Cecilia could walk away free. That is what God has done for us. In his great love, Jesus wrapped his arms around us and he took the fall. He took the pain. He took the sin. He took the judgment. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that we would be protected and so we could walk away free. Will you receive God's love in Jesus? Will you receive what he's offering you today? It is free. It requires a commitment. It requires a decision. It requires you to put your faith and trust in him. It requires you to be obedient to Christ and to live for Christ. But what an exchange. What a deal. That God, through his love, has offered you forgiveness, and he has offered you salvation, and he has offered you eternal life through Jesus Christ, who went to the cross your cross so that you wouldn't have to go. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you today in awe, in reverence for the gift, the gift whose name is Jesus, the one, the mighty one, the Son of God, who gave his life so that we could go free. We bow before you today humbled by that. We don't deserve what he gave. We deserve what he experienced. And we thank you for such a great love that he would give his life on our behalf. As we are here today before you, Father, there may be someone that has never given their life to Jesus Christ. Today is a day that they can do that. They can choose. They can choose to surrender their life to Jesus to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. They can choose to live for Jesus and to one day be with him for all eternity. If there's anyone here today, Father, that needs to make that decision, would you just speak to their heart now? Would you help them to make that decision? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together.